You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. This week on Adventures in Finance, we are joined by world renowned short seller and founder of Muddy Waters Research, Carson Block. When this man publishes a report, stocks have been known to plummet up to 90%. We explore the short trade Carson made in China that ultimately launched him into financial superstardom. The whole moment of releasing the report from then on had become so surreal. Like I said, the stock dropped a bunch and, you know, back then, I mean, tens of millions of dollars in market cap disappeared and those were huge numbers to me. And um, Jim Cramer is talking about it. And I mean, this was, this happened without warning, basically. Carson rips back the curtain on shorting fraudulent Chinese companies and gives us a glimpse of the exciting and yet dangerous world of short selling. At times employing tactics normally reserved for a spy thriller, Carson and his team of analysts leave no stone unturned and travel to distant lands to reveal the truth on criminal enterprises. Yeah, I mean, we use some of the same techniques against people who, you know, we believe are criminals. I felt like I finally found a way to get back at that guy, the guy who thought, you know, thinks the rules don't apply to him and is going to do whatever he wants. And in this line of work, making enemies out of powerful and entrenched frauds is simply the cost of doing business. I mean, I was freaked out. I mean, I, you know, I left China for about five weeks because I wasn't sure that I was safe in China. In this week's feature, Grant Williams and Raoul Powell, the founders of Real Vision, deconstruct an interview on one of the toughest ways to make money in the markets. Kind of blindly accept what we're told to be the case. This is what happens. You absolutely have to question literally everything you see when you go to places like this. This reminds me of the big short. The amount of mental pressure a short has to go through first because they know they're right, yet the market doesn't want to believe it. You know, it takes incredible fortitude, and I've seen many a person broken by that. And with current stock valuations at astronomical levels not seen since 2000 or 1929, no matter what you invest in, understanding short selling is essential, and to understand it from a man like Carson is priceless. Coming up on Adventures in Finance, short selling. And also, in our long short segment, Aaron and I will highlight the good and those not-so-good stories of the week. I am Long Sterling, and I read an article in the Financial Times, and it reported that respondents have cut their entire exposure to the euro, and some have even reduced their holdings of investments denominating euros to the bare minimum. So one-trick ponies, companies to derive the bulk of their revenue from one uh, particular uh, customer is something I am decidedly short of this week. And finally, in our Things I Got Wrong segment, we speak with a seasoned market expert about an investing mistake they made and ask them to share a nugget of wisdom with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. Uh, yeah, this is a great one this week. We've got uh, Dr. Steve Keen, the professor of economics at Kingston University in London, and he's going to talk about some mistakes he made relating to Australian real estate. And there's plenty of people that can relate to that, I'm sure. I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. 
Well, today is April 6, 2017, and welcome to episode 10 of Adventures in Finance. 10? Yes, Grant, 10. To my right is James. How about that? James, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing good. Uh, it, it sounds like Grant is surprised that we reached 10 episodes. It's an important episode for us. Important milestone. We've reached a double-digit milestone. Double digits. How about that? Grant, well, do you think uh, Real Vision can spring for a cake with some candles? Well, let's not get carried away. Certainly not 10 candles. Maybe one. Well, it's another milestone for us, too, because my co-host, Grant, is in a similar time zone for the first time in what seems like forever. So, Grant, where in the world are you? Yeah, this uh, this week I am in a beautiful, sunny San Francisco, I'm delighted to say. Um, you mean you're somewhere where it's not raining? It's not raining. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful here today, although my only experience of it is through a hotel bedroom window, so it's not much good to me. So the sooner we get uh, we get on with this, guys, the sooner I can get out and enjoy that sunshine. Well, let's get on with it. Coming up first is our long short segment where, as Grant said, we go through the good and not so good stories of the week. And uh, Grant, do you want to start or would you like me to start with a long and short? Uh, you know, what? I'll start this week, Aaron. Um, uh, my long this week, it's not a story um, in the new sense, uh, but I'm long 1984 by George Orwell. Now, this is a book I read years and years and years ago and, and under duress at the time when I was uh, at school. Uh, and I read it again recently. Um, you know, I do a lot of traveling. I'm on planes a lot and I tend to try and take an old book with me that I'd read before and, and you know didn't really enjoy that much. And this was one of those. I remember reading it almost at gunpoint when I was a kid. But you know, you read that book again now, uh, it's it's extraordinary. It really is extraordinary. And I would urge everybody out there uh, who has even a passing familiarity with it to pick it up and read it again because um, it's becoming more and more apposite as the days unfold. And my last book recommendation, I ought to add, I had plenty of people email me to say that they had actually bought uh, My Wicked, Wicked Ways, Errol Flynn's biography. And the one quote I enjoyed ah. most was, a cracking holiday read. So there you go. This is almost <laughs> turning into book corner. But that's my long for the week, 1984. If you haven't read it in a long time, pick it up and read it again. It's a sensational book. Grant, two observations from there. I think it's kind of ironic you were forced to read 1984 at gunpoint. Um, <laughs> right. Second point is that I think, you know, with all the book recommendations, what I, I don't know who I need to lobby for this or who I need to speak to, but I would love to get a Real Vision uh, book, kind of a book uh, library set up so that, you know, our viewers and, and listeners could, could kind of look at all the books that our contributors have talked about. And you've talked about Raoul as well, uh, because so much of, of knowledge is built upon the shoulders of giants and, and uh, it'd be great to have that, I think. Yeah, you know what, let's, uh, let's, let's put that on the to-do to -do list. Just don't put James in charge of it. <laughs> All right. Well, my long for the week is, it's a little bit more financial. I am long sterling. And I read an article in the Financial Times, and it was reporting on a survey that was published on Monday of reserve managers at over, or actually around 80 central banks who are responsible for investments of up to $6 trillion. So these people manage a lot of money. And so this was out of the central banking publications uh, paper. And it reported that respondents have cut their entire exposure to the euro. And some have even reduced their holdings of investments denominating euros to the bare minimum. 71% uh, 70, of respondents say the attractiveness of the pound was undimmed in the longer term. And just over a third of the respondents, which is around half, uh, consists of emerging market central banks, said that the concerns over the Europe, uh, European single currency area were based on growing political instability in Europe. So I thought it was kind of interesting that central banks, if you look at the surveys, are coming out and saying that they have less confidence in, in the European currency and are actually maintaining their exposure to sterling. So uh, this week, I am long sterling. 
Well, it's, it's ironic that the, the thing that they're worried about, this political instability, was actually started in Britain with Brexit, obviously. Um, right. Uh, and yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I agree. I think the pound, um, the pound has had uh, the living hell kicked out of it. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's probably set for a rebound. So I, I would, it's not often I agree with central bankers. But uh, in this case, Aaron, I will have to say that I am uh, I'm firmly on their side. Oh, we've got this on record. I know. Might come back. <laughs> I know. This could come back to bite me in a horrible way. Well, now, my short for the week, uh, I am short one-trick ponies. Um, now, there's a company in the UK called Imagination Technologies, uh, and they were somewhat reliant upon the business of Apple for their profitability. And uh, when Apple announced that they were uh, going to make their own graphics power chips this last week, uh, Imagination Technologies fell 60% overnight um, just from losing that Apple, uh, that Apple contract. So, you know, when you, when you get into this Apple supply chain, you get into uh, the number of companies, particularly out in Asia. I mean, there aren't that many in the UK, I don't think, that are reliant upon Apple. But there are so many in, in Asia that uh, do a tremendous amount of their business. It's a very fragile food chain. Um, and I think it's something that people should uh, should dig into and look for a lot of these companies. We saw the problem with the Samsung exploding phones and the problems that had rippling down the supply chains. And if Apple are, which would be a perfectly natural move, going to come and bring a lot of this stuff in-house, that's going to cause problems for a lot of companies. So one-trick ponies, companies to derive the bulk of their revenue from one uh, particular uh, customer is something I am decidedly short of this week. Oh, Grant, that's actually... That would be a great segue into today's commentary because uh, when you think about you know, looking at companies as short, you definitely want to find some of these companies that have an overexposure uh, or, or just tied to one giant customer uh, and, and, and derive their sales from this. So that would be an interesting exercise to go through. But let me go to my short very quickly. Um, I am short the New York metro area and there was an article. In uh, the New York- I know where you're going with this one. Well, why didn't you pick it then? I love New York. New York's my favorite city in the whole world. I'm not going to be short New York. I couldn't do that to myself. You know what? It, it's tough, but even I, you know, Grant, I came from New York before coming here, and I love New York, but just the realities of, of rent and, and what's happening with overpopulation is just is too difficult. But uh, with this story, it, it looked at actually some of the statistics from the U.S. Census, where more than a million people have moved out of the New York area to other parts of the country since 2010, which is a rate of 4.4%. And you know, according to experts, it's because the nation's economy is improving and therefore there are more jobs and cheaper places to live. Nonsense. And, re- <laughs> and, retirees, and retirees are choosing to move to warmer climates. And since you're in San Francisco, I want to ask you, I mean, did you see the, the mass migration or a- mass emigration of millennials out of San Francisco as you were flying in? Uh, I, I did not see, you know, sways of them crossing uh, crossing the, the mountains. But, you know, look, this New York thing, this is a cost of living issue. This is not anything but that. It's it's so expensive to live in New York these days. Um, and uh, this has nothing to do with the economy approving. This is people who cannot afford to live in New York City anymore. It's um, it's remarkable how expensive that city's got. And, it, and it's, you know, it's funny, everywhere you go, Sydney, I was in Sydney recently, crazy expensive hong kong singapore all these places london um in fact the only place that i've been in the last i mean literally we're talking uh, over a decade that is really cheap was south africa i was in uh, cape town recently beautiful city and um the first cheap major city that i've been to in over a decade and with the rand uh, currently getting crushed it's getting cheaper so I, i don't you know to me aaron this is not anything to do with the economy this is just a cost of living issue yeah no i couldn't agree more but i guess maybe for the short we can throw in these experts in there as well. Yeah, well, I'm much happier with that. 
All right. Well, coming up next is the commentary feature for the week. And, you know, this week is is really fascinating because shorting is a crucial element of a well-functioning financial market. And this week we have Carson Block, who is an incredible analyst and short seller. Uh, I read a story. He once disguised himself as a 70-year-old man to interview <laughs> managers and directors of a Singapore-based company while doing research on a potential short. So this is a truly astonishing story. And I think it's great because he shared some of the features of his research process that I think a lot of our listeners could benefit from. Yeah, this was this was a, a really fun interview to do. I sat down with Carson in San Francisco um, a little over a year ago now, um, and, and really not knowing that much about him apart from I think what most of us knew. We 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 knew about Muddy Waters, we knew about Sino Forest, but uh, as you say, Aaron, getting to dig into his process and hear how he uncovers these shorts and some of the links he has to go to was fascinating. So uh, so listen in and enjoy. When, so when I went to interview Carson in San Francisco, I, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I, re- I really wasn't sure what I was going to come across when we sat down to talk. You know, he had this reputation of being, you know, a real prickly character, and he had, he had a lot of uh, real polarized opinions on both sides of, uh, of the debate. But, you know, I found him to be very thoughtful, very smart, um, you know, engaging. It, it was a real eye-opener for me, and, and a lot of what he said... Uh, really struck me. So, so I'm really pleased that you and I are going to get the chance to sit through this uh, and pick it apart. So let's, let's listen to the first clip. Well, the balance sheet is where, you know, I mean, the balance sheet, usually when a company is committing fraud, it's to pretty up its income statement. And so that will almost always show up in the balance sheet unless they have a very sophisticated way of committing fraud. But so when you start to see balance sheet accounts that don't make sense, you know, blowouts in accounts receivable, inventories, a lot of CapEx, you know, really raises questions. Um, and, you know, there are, I mean, one of the things that we do is we really try to look at it um, almost psychologically. You know, why did management say this? Why did they do that? And a lot of times you see companies doing strange things um, and, you know, management will give whatever explanation, but we say, okay, well, is there, is there a, a hypothesis that better fits, you know, that action, that action, those statements, that action. And, you know, if that hypothesis, you know, to us seems to be more likely like, Hey, you know, if these guys are really, you know, just trying to bail out and mortgage the future uh, of the company, this makes more sense than, well, you know, we had a customer who requested blah, blah, blah. So, you know, the, those, are, those are the things that we do. So I wouldn't say that, you know, we don't, we don't have, you know, I don't usually have these moments where I, you know, I look at it for five minutes and say, aha, although, you know, Sinoforce, yes. Um, so it's, it's really, it's a combination of things and just, you know, spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, what the numbers mean and what management statements mean. I, I just loved this when we were talking about this uh, because everybody knows uh, knows Carson and Muddy Waters from the big Sino Forest story. That, that was uh, it was such a big deal, and a lot of really really smart uh, investors got caught out by that. Um, but just just this idea that you know we're not looking for the obvious crazy fraud. We just we just look at what people are doing, look at what they're saying, and just think you know what if that was a fraud and. Or, and they're doing it for ulterior motives. And it was amazing to me how often when you do that, a lot of things become clear and a lot of things that uh, they say are 
obviously not all they seem. And so it was just the simplicity of, of Carson just questioning management. You know, this is something that, that doesn't seem to happen anymore. I've listened to a lot of conference calls and you know, the kind of sycophantic nature of, of the analyst community who get to question the CFO and ask a lot of softball questions. And here's Carson coming along going, well, you know, what if? What if we just ask the awkward question? And it's amazing how many times the awkward question leads to an awkward answer and, and away you go. I think this is true of all of investing is – you need to be asking the questions that other people aren't asking. Because if you don't, you're going to get blindsided. And the real opportunities lie with where there is a disconnect between the market narrative and the narrative that you can build. Now, maybe you're not right with your narrative, but if you can construct a sensible opposite narrative that seems to test out, then you might have an opportunity. So I think it's really important. And what I like about short sellers is in a bull market, you know, we're at all-time highs right now, is they are having to do more work than anybody else. So the quality of their analysis has to be extremely high. You know, Russell Clark at Horseman has had to do, I mean, he didn't have such a great year last year, but all considering, he's been phenomenal in a, yeah. in a market that goes up, not losing money. The investment discipline, I think, is staggering. I think that's what Carson is also saying, is he's trying to be disciplined in what he does and think things th- through carefully. So that was great. Yeah, it, it, but it's it's the simplicity of the questions that need to be asked that don't get asked. That's what blew me away. It, you know, this is not you don't have to be really really smart and know all the you know. This is not Harry Markopoulos type questions. These are just well, is that true? You know, just pushing them on thing on statements they make instead of just blindly accepting them. Just just fascinating stuff. Um, anyway, on to the next clip. So how I got into short selling was I had this it's this company Orient Paper that I knew was a zero. I mean, I'd gone and actually visited the company and, and I saw that they were, they had, they put on this, it was really a Potemkin factory. And I had done enough business in China and I'd even co-authored doing business in China for dummies, you know, to know that the Potemkin factory was, it was a common scam that Chinese companies would run on Western buyers, you know, so the Western buyer would go on Alibaba or global sources and think that he's talking to this factory when in reality he's talking to an individual who's very thinly capitalized. And, you know, when the Western investor would fly out to visit the factory, you know, that individual would strike a deal with some factory. And for the day, you know, he would rent the factory, put his signage on it. The workers would change their uniforms, you know, just the show. I mean, it, that, that's one of the things where living and doing business in China was very important to my evolution as an investor and, you know, into somebody, you know, into a short seller, not just because there was this massive Chinese companies that were total frauds listed in the U.S., but because it taught me to think in more dimensions. And just when you see how in China, everything needs to be questioned, the ownership of, you know, every asset needs to be questioned, the identity of the people you're talking to um, you learn, well, I mean, the hard way, um, you learn to do business that way by always having a, a decent measure of skepticism and doubt about what your eyes are showing you. And so basically that's, you know, that applying that same skill set to Orient Paper, um, I knew it was a fraud and I didn't really know what to do about it. 
This is something that, for me, having spent as much time in Asia as I have, again, I'm sitting there with this kind of half smirk on my face because he's absolutely right. You question everything. And and it's the one thing that the Western investors that, that try and do business in, in places like China, it, it just blows their mind because the, the, the questions they would never, ever think to ask, like, are those workers that I'm looking at, the 300 people sitting at those machines, do they actually work for you or have you rented this factory for the day? You know, stuff like that would never occur to you doing business in the West. And yet, to Carson's point, you absolutely have to question literally everything you see when you go to places like this. And so, you know, I've been fascinated to watch the, the sort of the twin um, dialogues inside investors' heads about, okay, the credibility of China, it's a big economy, it's growing fast, and we kind of see the story. And so we're going to kind of blindly accept what we're told to be the case when anyone that spent any time on the ground there understands, to, to Carson's point, that this is what happens. These things have to be questioned. And, and when you find something like Carson did there, you find an Orient paper and you know it's a fraud. You absolutely know it. But you have that that period where you have to wait for the market to A, believe you, uh, and B, catch up to you. You can sit there knowing something's a fraud and and still not be certain about the outcome. You know, you still think, well, are people going to get that this guy rented a factory for the day? And, and it, what happens if they don't? Do, do, does my short position get busted? Do I get stopped out because the market doesn't catch on until it goes to zero? It's just such a fascinating discipline, to your point earlier on. Uh, and, and I love spending time talking to short sellers and finding out how they go about what they do. I never forget, I went to China back in 2004 and it was kind of a pivotal moment for me because it's what led me into writing Global Macro Investor. I went on a trip and the idea was to go and see the economic miracle in China. And I walked away from that trip and I couldn't sleep on the plane home. And I wrote it all up and it was called The Something Wrong in Paradise. And that was the prequel to, to Global Macro Investor because I suddenly saw that everything we were being told was a lie. So... That prompted me later to go back and start filming empty buildings before anybody else in the world had done so, to say, hold on, there's something massively wrong here in China. I never forget sitting down with a credit officer at one of the giant Chinese banks, and there was the, the massive consumer credit boom going on. And I said, well, how come your MPLs are so low? He said, oh, well, because we have a very careful um, <laughs> system. We have the credit analysts, and it's incredible. I said, oh, wow, how many loans do you have? And I, I can't remember the number now. It was like 100 million loans. I'm like, wow, and how big's your team of credit analysts? He goes, oh, we've got 20 or 30 people. Yeah. I'm like, you are kidding me. <laughs> and eventually I asked one of the partners of Goldman at the time who was out in Asia. I said, hey, listen, there's something wrong about this. Uh, can you go and check this out for me? So he went to see um, one of the banks, who will remain nameless, and said, can you show me how you keep all of the records of your debtors? Because you obviously you're a big country and a huge bank. You've got all of these debtors. And they said, well, we can't actually show you because they're on bits of paper in a warehouse in yeah. Shendu. I'm like, wow. So once you realize that, you realize that any fraud is possible, that nothing is for real. I was even finding about the MPLs in the banks to find out one of the reasons they'd lowered the MPLs is because they've been doing off-balance sheet swap transactions with each other to make it look like they had more deposits. So that gave rise to this ludicrous situation where people thought the, the savings rate in China was 40%. It wasn't. 
it was just fabricated by these fake swap deposits. So once I learned that about China, I realized that if a country can do this on such a gigantic scale, then what Carson said is right. I mean, everything needs to be questioned. I called my father up and you know, I said, you're not going to go long this thing, but do you want to short it with me? And he said he didn't want to do it. So um, this was actually, the time that I went to see Orient Paper was actually before they did their first audit with BDO. So I figured, okay, this is probably some mob-style pump and dump. You know, I, I'd grown up on Wall Street in the 90s where you had a lot of those. No way they get an unqualified audit opinion. They're probably going to dump the stock before the 10K is due in March. You know, I, I've got a business to run. I don't know if I have enough time to work on this thing on the side anyway. So whatever. I'll just, it's a curiosity, but I'll just move on. So it wasn't until early April that um, just, you know, for the hell of it, I pulled up the stock expecting to see it suspended. And I saw that it had the same market cap as when I went to visit it, uh, about $150 million. And I was stunned. So I pulled up the 10K and yeah, there was an unqualified audit opinion. So that's what floored me. And then I realized, well, I have, I have some runway to actually do this as a side project. I don't really know exactly why I'm doing it as a side project because I'm not sure, you know, putting a report on it as strong sell and exposing it is, is going to move any needle. But all right, you know, fuck it. Let me do it. So it was basically just taking a flyer that led me to put that report together. And that began my career as a short seller. You know, when Carson told me this story, um, you know, he said he, he put this thing out there and didn't really know what to do with it. He just kind of dumped it out. And it went on the internet and he kind of circulated to a few people. And he said he just sat back and watched as this thing went round and round and gained more and more traction. And the call, the phone started ringing off the hook. And, and it just struck me that, it just takes someone to bring these things to light. You, know, you, you just you say, hey, you know, this looks sketchy. And once it's out there now with the, with the ease of access to information and the speed with which stories like this travel, frankly, I'm surprised that more of them haven't come to light. And you know, I've interviewed several people since uh, Carson, forensic accountants um, and guys that look for these kind of frauds. And and they all say the same thing that the the, the cognitive distance and, and, the, and the and the willingness of people to suspend belief because they like the markets going up they like the bullish stories and it's just kind of hard to be a short seller it requires as you said Raleigh it requires incredible discipline often in extraordinary mental fortitude when when the market is telling you you're wrong about something you're so convinced you're right about um, but Carson said once this thing got traction. And this report started to circulate. It was amazing how quick people leapt on it uh, when they could see it was a sure thing. And I just get the feeling, as you've said many times, when you get to the top, this is when all the bad stuff starts to come out. And I'm just waiting for a whole raft of these Orient Paper type things to come, not just in China, uh, but in Western markets too. And I get the feeling that uh, we could be close to some really, really interesting fun and games. Yeah, I've got a few pet theories myself on who's a fraud and who <laughs> know, isn't. Yeah. <laughs> and all <laughs> I do know, all I do know and is that in recessions, bad things happen and these things get revealed. So the market's at all-time highs. You know, we're very long in the tooth in this uh, expansion. I think, you know, a recession's due in the next year or so that I've talked about extensively. One thing I do know and is very interesting is that 
you're never going to find out from the auditors. Remember Harry Markopoulos when he came on? Yep. And he basically said, listen, no financial fraud has ever been uncovered by the auditors. And that's staggering. I mean, what is the point of an audit? Yeah, exactly right. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So, you know, what I do love about the financial markets is that what it leaves is an opportunity for someone like Carson. If the system is inefficient, he's exploiting the inefficiency. And that's the right thing to do. That's why short sellers play a very vital role in the free functioning of markets and the capitalist system. You know, people think, oh, they're evil. You know, they're not, because what they're trying to do is create proper price discovery so people, more and more people don't lose their money. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple of other big examples out there right now where I think people are being almost hoodwinked into making some investments. There's a particularly uh, well-known instance of a car manufacturer that may or may not be electric. And you're like, really? These kind of stories that you come up with, and next we're going to send people to Mars, and then we're going to occupy Mars. And by the way, can I borrow another billion dollars? You know, somebody needs to ask questions. Maybe that's absolutely kosher, but ask questions. I can't wait to see the Occupy Mars protest. That's going to be one to watch. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's, let's jump into the next clip. You know, Orient Paper's initial response to the report that I put out was, you know, they said that my father and I had attempted to extort Orient Paper for money and that, you know, they refused to pay and that months later, this was our revenge. So I already saw just like how quickly they'll pull the gloves off. But now you know that it's a fraud, right? Now, that, as soon as they come out with that, you know. Well, I knew right? before. I knew no, beforehand. I know, but, but if you but, ever yeah. want a confirmation, I mean, that's. So yeah, I, I mean, I'll. It it was you know it was helpful because the whole the the whole moment of releasing the report at, from then on had become so surreal. I mean, the the stock, like I said, the stock dropped a bunch and. You know, back then, I mean, tens of millions of dollars in market cap were, you know, disappeared. And I mean, those were huge numbers to me. And, um, you know, and then, you know, Jim Cramer is, you know, talking about it. And, you know, I mean, this was this happened without warning, basically, or I, I, I didn't I didn't anticipate this. So there was a lot of surreality and it was in a way helpful um, to regrounding me when the company came back and said that we'd attempted to extort money from them because you know when you're taking all of the all of these arrows even though you know you knew you were 110% correct before you published it it's still hard not to question yourself yeah. but as soon as they told that lie you know and i mean that's a lie that i knew was a lie in my bones like more deeply than i could you know know or feel that these numbers they published yeah. were lies you're right that did help steal my resolve. So, and yeah, and just make me feel like there's no way, there's no chance in hell that I've made even the slightest mistake with these guys. This reminds me of The Big Short, which was a similar story, is the amount of mental pressure a short has to go through first because they know they're right, or, you know, they think the probability is extremely high that they're right, yet the market doesn't want to believe it. You know, it takes incredible fortitude, and I've seen many a person broken by that. Yeah, no, absolutely. But but then there's that moment, right? There's that moment you know you're right. And and sometimes it doesn't have to be a fraud. I mean, Carson's talking here about when the company actually start telling lies about him that he that he knows aren't true. It's like, okay, I've got him. This is it. Uh, but oftentimes in, 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 well, I don't know, let's pull 
an unnamed electric car company out the out the air. There are a lot of people making a big, big bet against that, and they've been wrong for a very long time. But if they're right, there's going to be that moment. And you know, we've seen we've seen um, fundraisings, we've seen capital raises, debt issuance in the tens of billions. And there's going to be that moment, right, when all the maths that everyone's looking at saying, you know, this just doesn't work. It doesn't work unless you can keep just bringing in money uh, from somewhere, which is basically based on on hope. At some point, that hope, if they don't deliver, is going to fade. And there's that moment uh, when the bow breaks and sure enough, the cradle falls. And, and for, as your customer was just saying, at that moment, it's if you have got the fortitude and you have managed to make it through the slings and arrows and you can get to that moment, it's it's a very, very sweet second of your life. Absolutely. So so the thing that most people know Carson for, or certainly the, the, the story that brought him to prominence, uh, was another Chinese fraud. That was Sino Forest. And, and this was a big deal because, you know, we had guys like uh, uh, Capital Group, Temasek, you know, big, big investors uh, who pumped a lot of money into this thing. And, you know, it's funny, if you can get those guys in and you're a fraud, the kudos it gives you, the the, the, the sort of the, the gold seal, the good housekeeping guy, whatever you want to call it, if you get those big investors in, you fool one or two of those, the thing just snowballs. So uh, when, when Carson brought Sino Forest up, everybody thought he was nuts simply because of the quality of the of the list of shareholders. So let's uh, let's hear Carson talk a little bit about Sino Forest. The way that, um, so we had a lot of documents that had to be read many of which were in Chinese. So on, so on one hand, I had three native uh, Chinese speakers. Um, one was an accountant, a former auditor. The other was a lawyer, and the other uh, is an entrepreneur. And so they put their desks in a cluster, and they had just, I mean, there were probably over 10,000 pages of Chinese documents. And so they developed a system to go through them and look for problems. And, you know, and they would report to me at the end of the day and I would ask them a number of questions and we had a list of, you know, the entities. I mean, Sinoforce had over 100 entities in the PRC. So, you know, but, it, but the, the thing that was really fun about that is, I mean, at least once a day, one of them would call out and say, oh my God, like, <laughs> look at this, look, this must be a fake, a forged bank letter, you know, and they'd show me, you know, a, you know, like a Chase bank letter that was obviously fake. And on my end... You know, I made sure I read through every annual report. I read through, you know, almost every filing from over 16 years. You know, so that took a hell of a lot of time. Um, and I was coordinating our field work. And so we're getting, you know, reports coming in, um, you know, from the, uh, from the investigators who were going to visit, um, purported suppliers, um, you know, trying to find customers. You know, we have, you know, we have our case, um, I mean, there were so many arguments. I mean, there were, we kind of do this thing where I'll put arguments or points on the whiteboard. You know, these, you know, you know, this company is a short because, or, or this company is a fraud because, you know, normally we get maybe five major arguments. I mean, we had literally 20 some odd points that we felt were, you know, smoking guns that which, that were showing that this company was a fraud. Um, I mean, we, we had work done in Suriname. You know, we had some work done in New Zealand. Um, it was just, you know, it was just incredible. Just everything this company did or touched was just filthy. 
If, if anybody was in any doubt, Raoul, when you were talking about how the quality of work these guys have to do, uh, that gives you a sense of it. I, I interviewed um, John Hempton, another incredibly gifted short seller down in Australia, and he was talking about um, a gold mine that they thought was a fraud that was that was listed on a major Western exchange, that was in, and the, the, the mine was in Romania. And John actually set up a Facebook account. And, and if you know John, he's not a Facebook kind of guy. <laughs> he set up a Facebook account and he went out and he found um, a student in Romania that, that, that they hired to go through the Communist Party archives because he knew that you know, in the, under the communism, everything is filed away on a piece of paper somewhere. So he paid a student part-time to go read through the Communist Party archives. And he ended up getting all, all the data that he needed to prove this thing was a fraud. So w- when you look at these guys, I, I mean, I'm just in awe. I have so much respect for the work they do and the thoroughness with which they have to do it because you, you have to prove that you're right and everybody else is wrong. And the only way to do that is to be diligent as hell. So you know, I take my hat off to these guys. They really, really do incredible work. Yeah, interesting enough, um, D. Smith, um, that's what he does yeah. on behalf of investors like Carson. I don't know if he did the uh, Sino paper, but it's but it was uh, the Sino Forest stuff. But I thought it was really interesting that D. goes out and he has the people on the ground who do all the investigative stuff and find out exactly what people are doing um, and I think, you know, that whole process, as you say, is incredibly admirable. I don't think long investors do as much of that work. Some do, obviously, but a lot of people don't. Uh, I think the other important point is, just to, be, just to be clear, we're not actually accusing anybody of being a fraud. We're just saying that maybe the narrative in one of the electric car companies that exists in the world is different to the reality. Exactly right. <laughs> just to be clear. Exactly right. T- t- time will tell. Time will tell. Exactly. So Grant, you know, listening to, you know, I picked that interview because it doesn't matter what valuation metric you look, you look at, uh, you know, these are bubbleicious levels, you know, you can compare it to 2006, 2007, uh, you know, 2000. I mean, it's some, on some metrics, even higher than 1929. So, you know, given these comparables, I thought it was just great timing to have someone like Carson come on the, you know, come on the program or actually revisit this interview so that we can share some of his thoughts and what he thinks of his thinking process when it comes to shorting. Yeah, I, I love talking to short sellers. I mean, these guys, it's its the hardest thing to do in my mind. And the guys that can do it well, um, it's a very special skill set. But interestingly, I, I interviewed um, a guy called Andrew Macken in Australia recently. Um, and we posted that interview last week, I think. And you know, he's a value investor, long, short value investor. And he has screens that, that look for undervalued stocks and overvalued stocks. And he was saying that currently their screens are throwing up the fewest number of potentially undervalued companies that they've seen uh, in many, many years. And the list of overvalued companies that they, their, uh, their algorithms want them to short has never been so long, which I thought was a very, very interesting, uh, very, very interesting signpost. And talking of Australia, we are moving into our last segment, Things I Got Wrong, which uh, is a favorite of both Aaron and I and seemingly the audience, uh, in which we speak with a market expert about something they got wrong and try and get them to share the ensuing lesson they learned with, uh, with you guys. Right. And this week, we spoke with Professor Steve Keane, who's a professor of economics at Kingston University in London. And he talked about two mistakes he made related to Australian real estate. So let's go to that. All right. With us this week is Professor Steve Keen. Uh, well, 
Professor, I know you as the renegade economist, but for those for our listeners who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. I'm a professor of economics, but when I'm introduced socially, I'll call myself an anti-economist. And the reason for that is that I regard mainstream economics as completely fallacious. And uh, my task in life is to get rid of what I see as a neat, plausible and totally wrong explanation of capitalism that focuses upon things it doesn't even have as its strengths rather than focusing upon its true strengths. And uh, so I spend my time showing where there are holes in mainstream economics and also some of the uh, alternative sects of economics and trying to get to the stage where it actually describes capitalism accurately rather than being a set of competing myths. Well, in your quest to debunk those myths, uh, Professor, can you describe a time where you faced, um, I guess, a significant challenge or even possibly made a mistake? I'll give you two. One is uh, my first uh, marriage. My my wife wanted just to buy an investment property. This is in I think, 1995 or six, I think. And I said no because our price house prices are in a bubble, and I refused to ride a bubble. The trouble I was I was I was completely right. There was a bubble, and completely wrong. If we actually wanted to make personal gain out of it, we should have actually bought an investment property at the time, which I could have later on moved out into when we got divorced. Long story. Uh, but what I did instead, she said, what, would you, what are you willing to invest in? And I said, I'm willing to buy bonds because I expect interest rates to fall. So rather than buying a, a property for $200,000, we bought $200,000 worth of government bonds. And of course, they duly did fall. So we did make a gain, but nothing like the levered gain we would have made if we bought an investment property and rode that bubble. Wow. There's a second I'm better known for, which I better mentioned as well. Uh, I was asked, I was, I was uh, ambushed in a meeting in Parliament House in Australia over making a call that saying that house prices in Australia will fall um, by 40% uh, as an analogy to, to Japan where they fell over a 10 to 15 year they fell about 40% after their debt bubble burst and I took that bet on and then house prices rose not because um, because what happened was the government actually encouraged people back into borrowing money and rather than the house the level of household debt falling as I thought would happen and, and did happen in America and England and Spain and so on with Australians being encouraged to go further into debt uh, the bubble was continued to be maintained so the Australian house price bubble kept on going and I was seen as getting that bet wrong in fact I got the cause right but I got the direction of change wrong and that says people did not uh, start trying to pay themselves out of debt. They just continued accumulating it. And Australia is now the most one of the most indebted countries in the world in terms of the level of household debt. To give you an idea, it's uh, the current level of household debt in Australia is 125% of GDP. I think it's about 70% in America. But I got the bet wrong. So I get, I get pilloried for getting the bet wrong in Australia rather than being right about the cause. Yeah, but as I listen to that, it just seems it seems like an unfair bet because they, you know, on, on the one hand, they can control in some ways uh, potential outcome of, of this of, of this bet, right? I mean, um, you, it's, it's you against the government. Uh, but from this, I guess, from this bet that you made and, and the, I, I don't want to call it the wrong prediction because, there's, you know, mm. time will still play on. But what nugget of, of wisdom do you think you could share from that experience with our listeners? Well, it's a classic one that Keynes once made as well, but it's, it applies to politics as well. Keynes once said the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And I think on the same front, that's true. And he add to it as well, the government policy can remain uh, insane longer than you can remain angry. So uh, what I've realized is that the, the government in this, in this case, of particularly in house prices, uh, because rising house prices mean driven by rising credit, 
because rising credit makes an economy look like it's performing well, politicians have an innate bias towards maintaining house price bubbles and will do anything they can to do so uh, unless the weight of, of uh, changes just overwhelms them, as it did back in America in 2006 on to 2010. So don't underestimate the capacity of politicians to be venal and the real estate market to be feral. Professor, in my humble opinion, I think you will ultimately have the last laugh, just like, well, your prediction with uh, the great financial crisis. So uh, I encourage people to follow your work. You know, where can people find you on social media? Do you, do you write? Uh, are you working mm. on any projects? Where can people find you? Well, my th thing actually that just started just a few, literally yesterday, is I've started an appeal for public funding on Patreon. And that's if you look at Patreon slash Prof Steve Keen, you'll find me. And that is uh, basically my role is as a public intellectual because economics has been captured by a mainstream cult uh, which dominates the universities. And that uh, means that the, the chance to get a, a genuinely descriptive uh, theory of capitalism is just not going to happen out at the universities. It has to happen outside. And uh, a lot of people in public like what I do and would want to, you know, me continue to give them hell inside the uh, the academia for being stuck with outdated theories about how capitalism functions. Uh, if you go to Patreon, you can support me there. And you'll also see me, of course, on Twitter as Prof Steve Kane. And I have a new book coming out called uh, Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis? And that, uh, that website is also called Prof Steve Kane. Great. That is very much in line with what we're trying to do here at Real Vision as well. And so, Professor, it's a pleasure to have you on and uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Grant, the irreverent Professor Steve Keen was, you know, he's always a pleasure to speak with. And in Australian real estate has been a hot topic. And you were recently in Australia. So how did you, uh, did you gauge the, gauge the temperature there? Was that a topic of conversation? Oh, look, real estate in Australia is always a topic of conversation. You cannot talk to particularly Sydney siders without talking about um, the real estate market. And there are two, the two camps. There are the people that own houses who believe it's not a bubble. And there are the people who don't, who believe it is a bubble, has been for years, and is going to implode tomorrow. Um, you know, it's a fascinating two-tier market. If you go to the west of Sydney, um, prices have actually fallen significantly. But anywhere around the harbour, uh, they've always been high, and they're going higher. So, you know, at some point, um, it's going to fall. Uh, but maybe we haven't quite reached the end of the road yet. Well, we have reached the end of this episode. And just a quick legal plug before we end. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors only. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, and trade responsibly. Yeah, well, next week, uh, join us again for the usual long short uh, and things I got wrong segments. And we will be exploring in our documentary segment the looming pension crisis, something which Raoul and I have been talking about for some considerable time. Uh, and this is a very important topic, both for now and for the future. It's something people really need to educate themselves about uh, for what is essentially a slow motion train wreck. That's right, Grant. With the whole generation of baby boomers entering retirement and pension funds chronically underperforming, and, and also given a business cycle that is overdue for a recession, what you have is a potential perfect storm brewing on the horizon that you just can't afford to ignore. If you've got an interesting question about this week's show, we'd love to hear it. Send us an email or voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard and you just uh, somehow managed to stumble across us, then please do subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you get a second and could rate and review us, that would be hugely helpful for us. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. And you will also find us uh, on Facebook and LinkedIn if you just search for Real Vision. 
You can follow me on Twitter at at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you can follow me at Macrodidact. That's it from us. We will see you all next week. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com